Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, mm -hmm. probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Hi, this is Małgorzata Bonikowska, and you're listening to episode 72 of Polcast, recorded and produced in Toronto. Who would have thought, just over a month ago, when I was getting your episode 71 ready, that the next one will be produced in a totally different world? and therefore will not contain its regular segments. A while back, Maria Ruzańska from Just Be Cooking and I recorded a conversation about Polish Easter traditions, which are all about being together, having the Easter basket blessed in the church, sharing hard-boiled eggs with family members and relatives and friends, the same way we share opłatek, the wafer, before our Christmas Eve dinner. And none of this is going to happen this year. It will be the first solitary Easter, with closest family members only. In so many households, people will be alone, isolated by the virus that changed the world we live in, in a way that none of us has ever experienced before. Well, I believe in knowledge, awareness, and science. So much false information is spread everywhere, and we should not be passing it on. That's why I immediately said yes when I was contacted by Dr. Rafał Kustra, who asked me to publish in Gazeta an appeal to the Polish community in Canada by himself and two other Canadian experts of Polish descent. These guidelines, how we can all help to prevent the tragedy caused by COVID-19, were published in Gazeta on March 23rd and had thousands of readers. The authors of the appeal were Dr. Rafał Kustra, Associate Professor at the Dalla Lanak School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, Dr. Łukasz Boba, a vascular and endovascular surgeon at the South Lake Regional Health Center in Newmarket, Ontario, and Arek Aniołowski, Senior Advisor at the Ministry of Labor uh, at the Government of Ontario. I invited Dr. Rafał Kustra to talk to me on podcast. You work for an institution that's called Della Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. What does this institution do? Right. So we are we have started as a department of health sciences, but you know our history goes back all the way to 1927. We were a school of hygiene. But a few years ago, we have become a separate faculty within University of Toronto uh, with the big donation from the Dalalana family in Toronto. And uh, that's where we have converted to a school of public health with a separate faculty of University of Toronto. So it is a graduate department. We have a host of master level and doctoral level programs. We train officers of health, our Toronto, for example, our Toronto Medical Office of Health. We have programs in epidemiology, social and behavioral sciences, health policy and management, and biostatistics, which is the division that I am in. Now, what do you actually do there? Well, I'm a full tenured professor, and uh, so I teach, I do research. The biostatistics, uh, which sometimes is in Europe, uh, in Poland, for example, is referred to as medical statistics, but I think biostatistics is a much more accepted term, is, is a branch of statistics which, that deals with uh, data uh, encompassing human health. So this can be anything to do with genetics, for example. I had had uh, a number of research projects in genetics and genomics. can deal with basic lab science that can eventually 
let us progress to uh, to treatments and interventions. But it can also deal with public health. Obviously, the, the reason why we're here today and why we're talking to each other is because of an appeal that the three of you, you and your two colleagues or friends and colleagues formulated and decided to spread among the Polish community in Canada. What was the reason why you decided to do it? My two colleagues and friends, uh, one of them is Lukasz Boba. He's a, a, a doctor, a medical doctor. He's currently a surgeon. Uh, but he has a vast experience in emergency uh, room uh, uh, medicine. Uh, and Arkadiusz, who is a policy advisor, senior policy advisor, governor of Ontario, we saw that there is a need to, uh, to target a message which has been broadcasted, I suppose, by all kinds of, of, uh, of government and non-government agencies, but maybe maybe target a little bit more to Ontario and Canadian Polish community. But in general, the message is the same. There is a wave, possibly a very large wave of infections due to coronavirus coming to Ontario and to Canada, which has a huge potential to overwhelm our healthcare system. So uh, uh, me being an academic in the public health and uh, and knowing and collaborating with a lot of people who actually deal with epidemics and public health issues, I'm uh, I'm well aware of what is coming and what may be coming. And of course, people like Lukas who are at the forefront of, of dealing with sick people and and Arkadiusz Arek, who is at uh, policy level involved in, in, in making sure the messaging gets through and it's targeted to the to the people. We all all of us saw that there was a potential to perhaps spread the message sharper and wider to hopefully avert some of the worst consequences that we might see coming out of the uh, the pandemic in Ontario and in Canada specifically. Okay. I want to know then what it is in points that we can do, which in your opinion is so crucial? Uh, we are talking about flattening the curve, but I think there was a lot of technical information being flown around. The technical aspects of this are not foreign to me. This is what I deal with. But I think for the general public, I think it's important to essentially do everything to avoid becoming infected and, which is probably even more important, spreading the infection further. So we are not inventing anything new here. We're just uh, repeating the same points that are being broadcast throughout uh, media and through the government agency. We just want to sharpen the, the message. Uh, so the points are very simple. First of all, if you are feeling sick, if you suspect you might be sick, you're waiting for a test, or or if you have recently come from abroad, and in some provinces even say if you have come from a different province, Stay home. You must stay home for 14 days. It's not even enough to practice social distancing. Stay home. Ask somebody to pick up groceries for you. If it's possible, there was actually people, volunteers on the internet who might do it for you, but stay home. Second message is for everybody else, stay home as much as possible. While if you are leaving home for exercise or for walk, and we all have to do this, make sure you maintain the social distancing rules, which is two meters or six feet away from everybody else. So those are the two main messages. Of course, uh, practice hand hygiene. I'm I'm old enough to remember my mom uh, uh, chastising after us for not washing hands when we come home or not washing hands when we come to, to kitchen. Well, those are very, very important messages now. Practice hand washing all the time, uh, whenever you can. Soap and water is fine. It doesn't have to be the hand sanitizer, which we know how 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 difficult it could get. So. How well are we doing? And I mean both our province and Canada. How well have we been doing so far? I think we are doing well, but I really have to caution everybody. It's really early days. Well, everybody expects the next two weeks, roughly two weeks, to be crucial for Ontario and for Canada for a variety of reasons. And this is part of what we, uh, uh, what we thought that the appeal was so timely and so important and so, uh, so urgent. Uh, we are, according to epidemiologists and according to the models where we, uh, where we model, we are about two to three weeks behind Italy. So 
according to my modeling, maybe around 17 days, a couple of days ago. Uh, those are very small details, around two to three weeks behind what is happening in Italy. Now, of course, what we're trying to make sure is that what is happening in Italy now doesn't happen to us in two to three weeks. So this is a very first thing. Second thing is that two weeks is roughly about the time that it takes from somebody getting infected to somebody getting picked up by statistics uh, that we all see in terms of a number of infected, because that roughly takes about a week, maybe a little bit less on average. Of course, it can take up to two weeks, maybe even longer, but two weeks. But roughly about takes about a week, six days to uh, from infection to start showing symptoms. Then it takes about two, three, maybe four days for those symptoms to worsen enough that you start getting worried. And then, you know, you might become eligible for a test. We are still rationing tests in Ontario. And then it takes another two or three days or four days to, uh, for, the t- avail- for the test result to become available and for that person to become, you know, uh, maybe that's a uh, awful way of saying it, but become part of a statistic. So what we're seeing now in terms of number of people infected, the sort of the rate of infections in Ontario, it's about two weeks behind what is really happening in the community. So we have about two to three weeks behind Italy. We have about we have a picture now which is about two weeks old. Uh, in terms of what is really happening uh, in a community, because that's how long it takes for the sort of those those cases to to show up in statistics. And on top of it, we had a, still a wave of people coming back from March break. So I've canceled my March break. Our family canceled March break, but some people have chosen to to fly out to uh, for the spring break. And those people have been coming for the, in the last couple of days, potentially, and for sure, some of them bringing back the uh, coronavirus. So. It is a crucial period. What's going to happen in the next two to three weeks is a crucial period in terms of how many infections, what is, how large the wave is going to be in terms of infections, and then how large of the, how many of those people will start showing up in emergency departments and ICU. So that's what we're trying to avoid. Okay, I want to understand when you say we're two, three weeks behind Italy. What does that mean we're two, three weeks behind Italy? It means if we do nothing, we're going to be in their position in which they were two or three weeks ago. Is that what you're saying? Well, we're hoping not. So epidemiologists typically uh, try to understand where the actual local epidemic starts. So it's not enough to say that, that there is one or two people who have become who have been uh, detected as being infected in a certain community or in a certain province or in certain regions. It's really where the local spreads are becoming viable, where where the numbers are large enough that we cannot trace and we cannot chase everybody whom, who has been detected to be a case, and we cannot try to put a, you know, to isolate or to uh, influence people who might have come in contact with this. So, you know, it's, it's those are rough guidelines, but typically when the rate of infection passes 100 people in a certain community or in a certain region, then we start to think that this is where the epidemic becomes an epidemic, meaning it becomes an outbreak, an epidemic. You can play with those numbers, but it really doesn't affect the fact. So if you look when Italy has passed, Northern Italy, because Northern Italy has passed its sort of 100 case mark of officially detected cases, and when we look at uh, when that happened in Canada, which was mostly Ontario and BC at that point, uh, there was roughly about uh, a 17-day gap. Now, we also think that our the large-scale local spread of virus. So a lot of so of course when the epidemic starts, all the cases, or the vast majority of cases, are important cases. People who come back and bring the virus. At some point, if we do not catch them, isolate them, which we potentially could it not, this becomes a local disease, locally spreading disease. So roughly, we can say that that started in Italy about 17 days or 14 days, maybe 20 days earlier than it started in in Canada, especially in Ontario and in BC. Then the question is, why did it spread so fast there? Why do we see this incredible, incredible increase? Were they not doing what you are asking us to do? Let me answer it this way. It's very hard for the society, open society like Italy, like Canada, uh, to respond with measures that some epidemiologists would like them to respond to. So epidemiologists have seen the wave which might be potentially coming, but 
nobody is certain what's going to happen, but they were more and more alarmed back in, uh, you know, late January, but certainly in February that this is this has a potential to become a, a widespread uh, widespread epidemic and now pandemic. Uh, but it's 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 not easy for everybody uh, to respond to harsh measures necessary to stop a potential epidemic at the early stages, which would require. Uh, people to accept very, you know, draconian measures, the, the measures that we might have seen coming out of early days in, in Wuhan, in China, where uh, government would force people to be tested would, uh, without any laws or, or any uh, legislation that would force people to be isolated. We, we just cannot accept those kind of things in a society that we have. So, so this is a, it's, uh, we, there will be time to go back and examine our response to to the epidemic. It's not the first epidemic that we had in Canada. Of course, we everybody remembers SARS and to some extent H1N1, as they call it, the swine flu. But this is the largest, by far the largest. But I think now is perhaps not the best time to be starting the, the, those this reflection. The reason why I'm asking this is not to evaluate or not to judge. It's just to see what can be avoided yeah, I'm not quite sure. I don't think Italy has done anything wrong. And, 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 and this is a very var- large question because it's not only epidemiology, but it's also a, a political, has a political dimension, economic dimension. I'm not really able to answer that. But, uh, but I think Italy has certainly had a misfortune of being the first in Europe uh, among, you know, uh, open, democratic, developed societies. And also aging societies, we, we have to add that, to be hit by this. It's, it's uh, uh, For all I know, it might have been just a backstroke of like, so it happened there. And then countries started to see how serious it can get and started to respond with various degree of, of urgency. What we can do now, at the moment of a, a epidemic in, 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 in Canada and Ontario, is taking responsibility for our own actions, which means doing everything that we can as members of a society, to limit a potential spread. Because what is very important, as I'm sure your listeners know, is that this virus can be easily spread by asymptomatic or presymptomatic people, which is a little bit different from, for example, what happened in SARS. A lot of people will have mild symptoms, which is a good thing, but what's not that good is that those mild symptomatic people or pre-symptomatic people, people who have very mild symptoms, symptoms that might not even recognize have anything to do with this virus, are still able to infect other people. So we have to think now, of course, how we protect ourselves, but also how we could potentially protect others from what might be going on in our own bodies without us realizing this. And I think this is the crucial matter. I'm going to ask you very quick questions, okay? And if you can maybe try to give me quick answers, because I'm sure we could talk for two hours, but we just don't have this time. Do we have enough tests in Ontario? Do we test enough? For enough tests. As a, as a biostatistician and epidemiologist, I would say we should be testing more. But uh, somebody who is in the health policy, which is not my field, or have economics, and, or, or, uh, they might say, well, the, the reality is that we do not have enough tests. There is a shortage, a worldwide shortage of testing material. The need for materials underlying those tests is, is fairly general. A lot of tests are based on the same kind of technology. And there is a worldwide shortage for this, as, as much as there's a worldwide shortage of everything related to the virus, and scientists, for example, or masks. Uh, so the answer is, I think, uh, I, I think the government of Ontario is doing and, and Canada is doing the best job it can and is, and is increasing this test. I heard that uh, the number of tests will be increasing dramatically in Ontario, which is great. I mean, the more the better. I mean, that's all I can say. So if anybody has um, what you called mild symptoms from the list that everybody knows by heart, I think by now, some symptoms are present, some symptoms are not there. Can I go and ask to be tested? Well, the criteria are changing daily. So I'm not quite sure what the criteria are today. Uh, and you can, uh, Ontario.ca has uh, slash coronavirus, I think, or slash COVID-19. That's it's very easily Googled. There's a very big button there in terms of the what are the testing criteria, assessment criteria. Uh, up to two days ago, uh, that would not be enough. Uh, and I think for a good reason. If there was a shortage of tests, uh, we really want to target people who are at risk to transferring it to other people. So health providers are first and foremost 
uh, I think in terms of needed to be tested. And uh, you have to remember, testing it on day one doesn't mean that that you can stop testing that person for a while because that the, the infection can happen at any time, right? So there was there was a certain rationing of tests. I mean, well, I don't want to call it rationing, but there was a certain priorities of testing. So I'm not sure what it is today because I know uh, that uh, Premier uh, Ford has promised uh, a large increase of testing capabilities in Ontario, and maybe this has happened. But uh, I think people who have been prioritized for testing are people who show very specific symptoms and have a connection to potential infection points. So either they have traveled to the places where at least as of a few days ago were much more risky in terms of being infected than others. So Europe, for example, Italy for certain these days of this New York state, people who are showing very specific symptoms, so persistent cough, elevated temperature, and also people who might be at risk of spreading to others. We have to remember there isn't really uh, any cure for this. There isn't any, any treatment that we can offer to people who test positive. The only thing we would like to uh, maybe test people more stringently is to make sure that those people do not spread it to others. So they exercise even larger degree of self-isolation and, and, and caution in terms of interacting. I mean, essentially cease and, and interactions. There isn't really anything we can offer unless you are in a very serious state where we basically need a, a ventilatory support or, or a ambulatory support. So if you test positive, you're sent home and you're supposed to be completely isolated and just recover or hope that you will recover. This is precisely correct. So essentially the only point of testing people who are mildly symptomatic are to make sure that they understand that they now have to exercise even higher degree of caution in terms of making sure they do not spread it. False information. Could you give me two or three examples of things that are falsely spread as, as facts, which you think are particularly dangerous in this situation? Things that people really should not believe in because it is, in fact, uh, dangerous if they do this or if they believe this. Well, maybe I can uh, uh, I can slightly rephrase it and say what is really true about this disease. It's a virus-based disease. The virus which causes this disease is in some sense quite similar to common cold. I mean, it's from the same family. In other senses, it's similar to a flu virus. It's not a flu, so I just want to make sure. But, you know, epidemiologically, it's not very different from the flu. Uh, uh, virologically, it is, but epidemiologically, it isn't. Uh, it is uh, it is a virus that uh, most likely has been has jumped from bats, uh, which are reservoirs of many viruses that, uh, especially coronaviruses that jump over, like SARS and MERS, the first SARS virus and the MERS virus, the Middle Eastern uh, respiratory syndrome. It is appears to be much more infectious than SARS. It also appears to be specifically malicious in a sense. I mean, viruses are not malicious because they're just pieces of RNA or DNA wrapped in around the protein. But it's particularly malicious in a sense that it, a lot of people experience only mild symptoms. Some people experience no symptoms at all. Yet, while it's good for those people, it's not that good for society because those people go around and spread the virus uh, without being detected. So those are the true things. Is it true? That if you get infected with this and then you recover, you're immune to this again. It's not going to happen to you anymore. We don't know yet. Uh, but I think it's a, at this moment, it's a good assumption that we have not had cases, documented cases of people who have become infected, recovered. And by recovered, I mean they do not have symptoms and they have tested negative for, for some time. You know, usually it's two or three tests with at least two 24-hour period in between them. And then they have become sick, symptomatic, and infectious. There have been some reports that people, after recovering and showing no sign of virus, they again test positive. Those are anecdotal evidence uh, kind of reports, and there have not been any reports that those people have spread anything. So I think we can assume at, at the moment, unless, unless we've shown otherwise, that this, in a sense, is similar to the cold or flu virus, that at least for a while, you become immune. While people will probably become immune for a while, at least for maybe for the next few months. Those people might become infected again if this virus mutates and comes back with vengeance uh, 
you know, in a few months or, or next year. Okay, let me give you a scenario. Somebody says to me, you know what, maybe it's a good idea to go out and make sure I get sick now because the healthcare system is still available. It's, you know, it's still not packed and jammed so I can get enough help. What happens if I get infected later when it gets really, really jammed? What do you say? I think that's an extremely dangerous idea. Although I understand that kind of thinking. I mean, you, you know, we're all trying to to kind of make sure that we protect ourselves and uh, and and uh, uh, and and increase our chances of you know, being treated properly and and survival. I think there's an extremely bad idea for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, you becoming infected might mean it will probably mean that you're going to infect other people. So on average, in a you know early stages of the epidemic, uh, an average person who becomes infected infects at least two or three or maybe four other people. So it's not only about you, it's about all the other people who might infect. And those other people might be the people who may, for reasons of genetics or predisposition or age, suffer much larger consequences than you do. Uh, also, you cannot really time that stuff. So you think you you might want to get infected now and time it so that when you're sick, it's you're still in a time where things are not overwhelmed, where you don't know that. And I also think it's a it's a it's a very dangerous and irresponsible idea. So I really, really, really would encourage people to not think about those kind of. Uh, our healthcare system is it prepared for this? Do we have um, do we have like a little bit of room for for the bigger wave? What if it becomes much bigger? At what point can we get so incredibly overwhelmed that the system will become almost in you know incapable of of handling it? Like in Italy, are we in that position? Are we in danger of facing that moment? So this is a great question, Margaret, and I think this is primarily a reason why we we wrote this appeal. So on a on a pure numbers basis, uh, our uh, intensive care capacity is actually lower than Italy it's on a per capita basis. It's about a thirty percent lower, about a third lower. So so in that sense, we we might actually be uh, if you just look at those uh, those 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 crude numbers of of, in, of intensive care capacity, we actually might be in a worse. Uh, preparedness than Italy. On the other hand, I think there was a lot of factors working for us. First of all, we saw what's happening in Italy. We have this unfortunate example uh, that we can really make sure that society understands how dangerous this thing can become. So I think that's, and the response of people is going to, to be crucial here in avoiding this pandemic. Uh, we also, Toronto, as some of your listeners might remember or might know, is we went through a a fairly scary SARS epidemic. So Toronto, apart from Hong Kong and China, of course, was probably the largest SARS uh, epidemic center for a variety of reasons. And uh, this has taught us, taught us a lot of good lessons. So there was a lot of uh, preparedness in the system that I think was going to help us. Of course, we do have ability, and we are, this is already being executed, to increase our uh, uh, our capacity by, for example, rescheduling uh, uh, elective surgeries. I know that Lukasz, who was not able to be here today, he a lot of the surgeries that he was supposed to perform has been rescheduled uh, uh, as long as they do not endanger the health uh, the the patient. We also have the ability to, to kind of see what's happening and what's coming and uh, prepare as much as possible. But there are limits. There are, of course, limits. There are limits in terms of capacity of a system. The biggest uh, fear that I have is for our healthcare providers, nurses, uh, doctors, uh, people who clean the hospitals, who prepare food there. Those are the people who are going to be most exposed and most at risk, and they're going to be risking their lives and the lives of the families because at, at the end of the day or in the end of the two days, some of them will, some of those people will spend hours and hours on the wards will go home and they might be at a point by the, at the risk of infecting their own families. They will be there to risk, to risking their lives to save us when we are incapacitated or in need of intensive care or even just you know critical care. So this is the moment that I really want people to think about is that uh, their behavior will affect the risk that those nurses and doctors and all the people working on the front line will face. If we do what you are telling us to do, 
when is this going to end? I, I have no magic ball. No, I know, I know. I'm just asking based on your knowledge and your research and all your contacts and everything you read. What do you think? Uh, I think we have a chance to uh, to avoid the worst. I mean, it's it's uh, it was almost inevitable that we will face a wave of infections and a wave of people ending up in, uh, in emergency rooms and intensive care. And unfortunately, we will face a certain amount of mortality due to this virus. That's that's uh, it's very hard to avoid that now. But the question is, will will it be? catastrophic or will it be just uh, something we can handle and, and learn from. Uh, I think uh, so far we're doing well, but those are early days. When you look at the curves now, we are not tracking Italy's, Italy's progress with this epidemic at this point. But that really doesn't mean that much so far. What's going to happen next two weeks is going to be crucial. So I do think we have a good chance of avoiding this if people really respond to what what authorities and health authorities and, and the government and you know our little appeal all those things that we're trying to achieve I think we have a good chance of avoiding the most catastrophic outcome. And if we ever and if we avoid it, then are we talking the fall? Are we talking winter? What sort of dates, more or less? So uh, this is where I really, really would like to avoid answering the question. But I know everybody has this question, so it's very hard to say. Uh, the uh, the most influential study of this epidemic, which came up from uh, Imperial College, uh, the you know uh, and Wellcome Trust, a very famous institution in in London, which has apparently has influenced both Boris uh, Johnson in England to change his course, and apparently even the Trump administration to change their course a few days ago, sees the restrictions lasting for up to five months. They they essentially modeling the the different uh, interventions like staying at home, closing businesses, closing schools. So th- those are the kind of models they are exercising in this paper, and they and they and they are seeing some of those decisions lasting for months. So I that's a little bit beyond my area of expertise. I really think that uh, in two weeks we will know a lot more. I don't see much changing in terms of restrictions for next four weeks, to be honest. So I think next four weeks, uh, we should at least count on next four weeks to be as strict in terms of closures and, uh, and restrictions as they are now. I, I, it's hard for me to see that. The question is what happens after that, and uh, it's very hard to answer now. It's not impossible that come summertime, this will subside a little bit. Uh, nobody's quite sure yet how this virus will respond to the warmer weathers and higher humidity and uh, those other things which typically affect some viruses, not all of them. Uh, so that it's possible that in four weeks, five weeks, we'll see some some decrease in in, uh, in infectious rates and uh, and you know, mortality and morbidity from this. Uh, the question is what happens that. So I think my most optimistic answer is this. I think for the next four weeks we have to we have to uh, uh, we have to assume that it's going to continue like that is continuing now, and then uh, if things go very well, uh, some res- some restrictions might start to be lifting. But I think t- until a widespread vaccine is available, we will have to adjust to to a somewhat different life, which where we try to limit the spread of virus as much as possible to avoid a second wave of this uh, epidemic, you know, uh, after the, this first wave is, subs- is, is, is suppressed to some extent. But how can we count on the fact that higher temperatures will do something if this is spreading in countries that generally have higher temperatures because they belong to different climate zones? Yes, that's a very, very good question. And uh, it's still a very open question how this epidemic will respond to the higher temperature. So uh, uh, one school of thought in epidemiology is that uh, even if this virus will respond to some extent to uh, to the change in, in, in the season, seasonal changes, uh, which most coronaviruses, which cause common cold, and even most flu viruses do respond uh, in terms of uh, in terms of, of epidemiological impact. Uh, that uh, this will only be visible once there is enough immunity in a population to to see this effect. So what I'm saying by this is this: if everybody is, as we call it, naive to this virus, meaning 
nobody has really immunity because it's a new virus, then it really doesn't matter that much how the season affects the virus because it's so easy for this virus to infect people. We don't need much of it to infect you. What seasons might change is that the amount of virus circulating, amount of virus, uh, uh, you know, pass through the response of your immune system might be, all those things might be a little bit better in terms of decreasing the infectiousness, but this will only work if uh, if there is enough common, or as I call it, herd immunity in the in in population to respond. The other uh, school of thought says, well, uh, let's hope it is possible that this epidemic will get uh, positively, from our point of view, affected by, by increasing temperatures, increasing humidity. So it is really the temperature and humidity which we think helps us defend ourselves on a communal level, population level from this virus. But what about those countries? Like what about like it would then not appear or not spread in countries that are typically warm and humid? Let me put it in simple terms. If if everybody is highly susceptible to be infected by this virus because nobody has immunity, nobody has lived through this, our bodies don't know how to react to this, then if somebody sneezes on you or somebody coughs on you, then it really doesn't matter what is the temperature and humidity in terms of uh the infection rate. Now, on the other hand, if there is, first of all, enough people who have acquired some immunity, full or at least partial immunity for this virus because they have they have already recovered. And on top of it, if our bodies are able to better respond to this, for example, for increased humidity, then it's possible that the virus will not spread as easily. Uh, so, so now, even in those warm and humid countries, the virus is spreading. Because there is, uh, of course, a lot of cases coming in from outside and bringing the virus in. And there is so many people susceptible, even to the small dosage of the virus, even if they increase immunity because of humidity, for example, they are still susceptible enough. They, they have zero immunity to the virus that it really doesn't matter that much. So that is one possibility is that the first wave has to go through the population. And, you know, thankfully, 80%, 70-80% of people only go for mild or moderate symptoms and doesn't really affect them that much. There's no lasting damage and they will acquire some immunity. So there is, there is, this, there is this hope. But, uh, of course, we, we might expect the next wave of this uh, in, in the fall and this is what we want to prepare for. The vaccine. Everybody's waiting for it. I know everybody's, I mean, there's so many people all over the world working on it. Why is it taking so long? Yes, it's, it's somewhat unfortunate. What we hear sometimes from uh, some political leaders or some people, we say, why is it taking, why can't we just do something about it? Well, vaccines are well, fairly intensive interventions in the human body, right? We are injecting something in the human body, uh, and this requires really, really rigorous testing. So it requires rigorous testing in terms of safety. So it's not enough if we take five or 10 people, we tried it, or we, we do some models. We really have to make sure that we have a large enough sample of people in a properly designed clinical trial to basically see, first of all, what is the safety of the vaccine? Are there any potential uh, side effects? Maybe there is something we have missed. What is the, and then, of course, the next thing is what is what we call efficacy. How effective is this vaccine in preventing the the infection, right? And those things take time. And uh, and of course, at this moment, we don't really have a vaccine to even try on those people. We have some models and we have some early trial. So when you hear 12 to 18 months, I really, really think that's what they will need to take. 12 to 18 months before this vaccine is deemed efficacious enough, meaning it is going to be effective in preventing at least some of that infection overwhelming us. And also it is safe. It is safe that that we do a lot more good than we might do potential harm. I mean, we all know what happened in the recent years in terms of vaccines, which have been around for decades and people have uh, all kinds of false <laughs> news, all, all kinds of potential and completely unfounded fears about vaccines, like for example, measles and rubella, right? So, so we've always, always made sure the vaccines are safe, safe enough. Uh, you know, nothing is perfectly safe, but safe that they are safe enough to deploy in a large population. And this will take time. 12 to 18 months, I think it's a proper target 
in terms of when the vaccine might become available. The SARS question, 2003, this is when it happened, right? We were all horrified and somehow we got over it. How did that crisis end? That's a very interesting question. One answer is that SARS, which was same kind of virus, also a coronavirus, uh, very similar. SARS was not as infectious as this one, meaning it's not as easily spread from contact to contact. It didn't evolve as quickly to be infectious. So you have to remember those viruses jump from animals. And at first, people get infected only from animals. And at some point, virus adapts itself enough where the, the person can spread it to person. This happened almost immediately with this virus. It did not happen immediately with SARS. So we had a little bit of more time. But I think even more important is the fact that SARS caused uh, very severe symptoms in almost everybody who was infected enough to be infectious, meaning that it was very easy to find people who could pose a risk to other people in terms of spreading the virus because they were already having severe symptoms and it could be isolated just by the virtue of the fact that they were very, very sick. This was much easier to isolate uh, and then uh, separate people who were infectious from the rest of the society just by the virtue of the fact that they were very, very sick. And very, very few people were infectious and not symptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So it was very easy to identify, aha, and people were turning themselves. I'm, I know I'm very, very sick. And uh, it was very easy to isolate people. So it's very easy to isolate this virus uh, and people who are spreading this virus in uh, just by the virtue of the fact that they were exhibiting very severe symptoms. This is not the case here. That's what's so dangerous about this virus. Okay, but was there anything, did we learn anything from there that could be applicable to the present situation, however different those two viruses are? Definitely the healthcare system has learned. We learned that you have, we have to respond, respond early. Uh, we also learned that we have to make sure that we have proper systems in healthcare so that when people show up with respiratory diseases, which is what's happening now, that everybody else is protected. They are now isolating uh, everybody in emergency rooms who are coming up with respiratory diseases in a separate room. So we've learned some of that stuff. Uh, we've learned how to protect our healthcare workers, which is probably the most paramount thing. There was, there was a, a large percentage of SARS cases in you know, Toronto were among, uh, not the majority, but still a very large, unfortunate percentage of SARS cases in Toronto were among healthcare workers, nurses and doctors. So I'm pretty sure we learned quite a bit on a policy level, this is again not my area, uh, where the governments try to respond earlier and, uh, and uh, maybe more... Uh, aggressively. Uh, and of course, you know, on the modeling side, we've learned quite a bit. We are using, and people are using SARS models now, although also influenza models to, uh, to model the spread of this epidemic. And this is why we see, you know, even government response based on, a, you know, relatively few cases at the beginning, because from those models, uh, these policymakers can see the wave coming, because this is what we learned. So I think we did learn. Now, whether we learn enough, uh, we'll have time to assess that. And are we lucky to be in Canada and in Ontario in all this? I think so. I, I, uh, well, <laughs> I love Canada. I love Ontario. I think what is also very good about this country is that our risk, what we do in Canada and Ontario, we still have a good level of trust in the government and authorities and professionals, which is not always the case around the world. And I think this helps now. Uh, we, I think we see uh, a, a very good response not perfect, and hence our appeal, but very good response among population uh, to the call uh, from the government officials and health officials, medical officials of health, to lower the, the spread of virus and to lower the wave that is coming. So I think this this level of trust in authorities and, and government uh, that we have in Canada, I think, will help us for sure. Thank you, Rafael. That's been extremely useful and extremely informative. So I may call you in about a month to see what you're going to say. A month has passed. Are we in a better position? Are we? Where are we going in all this? I hope you're going to say we're going to be okay. Yes, I hope. As all of us say, call us in a month and, and chastise us for being doomsayers. We'll take it because that will mean we've done our job. So thank you very much for helping us with the message, Margaret. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Rafał Kustra on our website, mypodcast.com.
for the duration of the pandemic, I will be presenting to you various experts and practitioners working tirelessly to beat the virus in many different ways. It's a time of emergency and nothing is normal, neither is podcast. It now has been transformed to COVID-19 themed podcast and will be released more frequently than once a month. I would like to make it every two weeks, maybe three weeks, depending on how much strength I will have to produce it. Well, I hope you found this special COVID-19 episode 72 interesting. You may have more time now. Many people do. And frankly, I do envy them sometimes, myself being really overwhelmed with work. Please listen, if you have the time, to the previous 71 episodes. If you haven't heard them yet, we featured fascinating people from all over the world with one thing in common, a connection to Poland. And don't forget to visit Polcast on Facebook every day. There are many great stories about Poland there as well. If you know of a story worth featuring on Polcast, please let me know. And if you would like to help me make Polcast, support it financially, please. You can do so by visiting mypolcast.com support. Any small amount helps. Trust me. Thank you, Michael Miasek, for renewing your financial support. It's highly appreciated. What music do I leave you with? My good friend, talented singer and composer, and a scientist with a PhD in theoretical mathematics, Ilona Kowalik, recorded this song a few years ago with her friend Łukasz Wolski. It's amazing how its lyrics, written a few years ago, have gained a special meaning and significance now. The song's title is Siła jest w nas. Strength is in us, within us. And those of you who know Polish will surely appreciate the relevance of its message. And its beauty, of course. And everybody will appreciate its beauty, even those who don't understand the lyrics. So listen to Ilona Kowalik and Łukasz Wolski. Stay healthy, optimistic, and remember, we can beat it if we are responsible and think about others. And, well, try to enjoy this weird Easter as much as you can. And let's hope we won't have to celebrate it like this ever again. Lecione dłonie w duszy but, kręte drogi, głuchy tłum, niepokój rodzi się. Gdy krzyk rozpaczy zostaje nam, jest wspólna myśl, jak ugasić strach. Dobry Boże, widzisz to sam, widzisz to sam. Wszystko czym karmisz świat 
Jest lustrem tego, co dostaniesz sam Dobra pasa czy zły start Istnieje mądrość ludzkich prawd Znajdziemy sposób, by zmienić świat Prostota Człowiek, 